Good morning. All right, welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. It's great to be here with you guys this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at one of the major characters in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, other than Jesus himself and his disciples. Uh, We're going to be looking at the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, as many of you are probably well aware, he was the forerunner of our Lord. He was sent to preach a message of repentance and to prepare the way for Jesus. In our text this morning, we're going to look to learn some valuable life lessons from John the Baptist. In fact, that's the title of our study together this morning. It's going to be Life Lessons from John the Baptist. And so as we go through our text, we're going to make a number of observations about John, some great examples that he leaves for us, and even some struggles that he had that I believe that we can all relate to and learn from. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 7. Verses 18 through 35, we've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Hopefully you're all there in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like to invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read our text in its entirety, and then we'll pray asking for God's continued blessings upon our time together. So, Luke writes the following in chapter 7, verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Verse 24. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon." The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. That's our text for this morning. Let's ask God's just blessings and leading and guiding upon our time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather here in this place. We can open up your word, Lord. We can open up our heart 
and allow you just to continue that work you began in us. Lord, I ask that you would lead and guide our time uh, of study in your word. I pray that as we look to learn from John the Baptist, uh, Lord, I pray that we would uh, not just understand what was going on in John's life and how you were using him, but Lord, that we would understand how these truths apply to our lives and how you desire to use us. Lord, I know and am confident, 100% sure, Lord, that each and every one of us are incomplete right now, Lord. We're, we're complete in you, but there's a work you desire to do in us. Lord, if we, you were finished with us, you'd simply call us home. The fact that we're here today is only proof that you still desire to do more in us and through us. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves to you this morning. Do that work in our hearts and in our lives. Lead and guide us, Holy Spirit, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Last week, if you were with us last week, that is, you will recall that we looked at the account of Jesus raising the widow's son back to life there in the city of Nain. And we noted that in the final verse of our text, that word about this incredible miracle spread far and wide. Reports about Jesus were spreading throughout the land. Verse 17 of chapter 7, if you just look up above our text this morning, it tells us that the reports went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. And we hear in the opening verse of our text that word of this report reached the ears of some of John the Baptist's disciples. And then in turn, that word was brought to John the Baptist. Now, This is not the first time that we've studied about John the Baptist through our study of the book of Luke. You may recall uh, Luke started off his narrative by telling us about the special circumstances surrounding uh, John's conception and his birth to his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth. We read about that in Luke chapter 1. We also read about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. Uh, when we looked at the ministry that he was doing out in the wilderness. The word of God uh, came to him, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Many people came out to him and responded well to his preaching, they being baptized and repenting from their sin. He was very bold in his preaching. He wasn't afraid to speak truth to anyone, in fact. That is what ultimately led him to his current circumstances. For the very last we heard about John the Baptist was that he actually openly and publicly rebuked Herod the Tetrarch who was ruling over the region of Galilee at that time. You see, Herod the Tetrarch had married Herodias who was actually his brother Philip's wife. Okay, And so he married his sister-in-law, which was wrong, and John the Baptist had no qualms with telling Herod so, that it was wrong for him to do so. We can read about that in Luke chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. But his actions in speaking out against Herod led Herod to seizing him and having him thrown into prison, which is where he has been for quite some time now. And so his disciples are having to bring word to him in prison. As they hear things about Jesus, they come and they report them to John. 
You see, John was not ashamed of the message of the kingdom of God. He wasn't afraid to share God's message with those around him. Despite the possible consequences that could come his way, he would not waver. Okay? And he, I believe, is an incredible example for us to follow. I would only hope that we would have the sort of conviction that John displayed. A conviction that was not ashamed of the gospel. A desire to live boldly for the Lord, no matter what the consequences may be. That we would live a life to bring honor and glory to the Lord. Well, after receiving this update from his disciples about the amazing things that Jesus was doing, John decides to send two of his disciples to Jesus with a question. Let's read verses 19 and 20 to see what John asked. It says, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? The fact that John the Baptist would send two of his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the coming one, or if they should look for another, is a bit confusing. Okay? Uh, why would John the Baptist question whether or not Jesus was the coming one? Which is a very clear reference to the Messiah. Okay? When we're talking about the coming one, we're talking about the long-awaited Messiah. John was the one preaching in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. When Christ came to him to be baptized, John baptized Jesus. Okay? John was the one that declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. You see, John was there when he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon Jesus. John was there when he heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What would cause John the Baptist to question something he so confidently proclaimed previously? It is a bit confusing, I must confess. Okay? But really, I believe what we have here is that I believe it all boils down to unmet and unrealized expectations. John the Baptist had an idea. He had a preconceived notion of what the ministry of the Messiah would be like. John the Baptist spoke of the coming Messiah as one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He spoke of the ministry of the coming one as if it would be one of great judgment. But what he was hearing about was a a kind and compassionate Jesus that was forgiving the sins and, and healing the sick. And it maybe didn't line up with what he thought about the Messiah. I think that John the Baptist, like most everyone else, also believed that the coming one, the Messiah, would usher in a new kingdom. John, like many Jews of that day, believed that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Roman government and establish an earthly kingdom ruled and reigned by the Messiah. I believe as well that his questioning had something to do with the fact that John was in prison. John was a prisoner and I believe that time in prison and began to take a toll on John. And he started to question his understanding of who Jesus was and what he was doing. John had been hearing about the works of Christ. 
things that Jesus did that clearly pointed to his identity as the Christ, as the coming one. John knew about the Old Testament prophecies concerning the work and the ministry of the Messiah. He knew what Isaiah had to say. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18 and 19 stated, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6 declared, Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 61 is where Jesus read from the day he began his public ministry in his hometown of Nazareth. He read the scrolls of Isaiah proclaiming the spirit of the Lord. God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You see, making a list of the things the Messiah would do, we may begin to see why John the Baptist was beginning to question. The deaf shall hear, the blind shall see, the brokenhearted are healed, the humble shall increase their joy in the Lord, the poor will have the gospel preached to them, the lame shall leap like a deer. What else? Well, these verses say the Messiah will also proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Perhaps... We can't be for sure, but perhaps John the Baptist has been hearing about all the works Jesus was doing and was looking at these things like a a checklist of sorts, okay? Is he really the Messiah? Let's see what he does here, okay? Deaf hear, check, okay? Uh, Blind see, check. Lame walk, check. The gospel preached to the poor, check. Liberty to the captives, hmm. Prisons opened for those bound, Not check, right? (laughs) Perhaps John was thinking to himself, well, I'm still in prison. I'm still held captive. What's going on here? Perhaps he was expecting Jesus to come save him from the prison cell that he was bound to. And perhaps John's questions weren't so much related to the actions Jesus was doing, but maybe more so the inactions. You see, things weren't working out the way John perhaps envisioned them. And he begins to doubt. He begins to wonder. Is there someone else that we should be looking for? Or are you the one? Listen, that can happen to us sometimes as well. We can expect Jesus to act a certain way or to do certain things. And when he doesn't, we can begin to question. We can begin to doubt. We need to guard ourselves against such tendencies. We need to remind ourselves of what else Isaiah said. Okay, Because God also spoke through Isaiah and told us that God's ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. You see, when God doesn't work out things the way we think they should be worked out, we can be confident that he has a better plan and a better purpose. John wouldn't end up being broken out of jail and he wouldn't see Jesus overthrow the Roman authorities and he wouldn't see Jesus establish an earthly kingdom. Instead, he was martyred 
for his faith in Christ. And he joined the ranks of the many prophets that went before him. But I bet John the Baptist is happy with where he's at now. I bet John the Baptist has no regrets about how Jesus worked things out. Knowing and and realizing and understanding after the fact that God's plan was infinitely better than his own plan. And so the next time things aren't working out the way you anticipated them to, don't question God. Don't allow doubt and ultimately unbelief to creep their way into your life. Remember that God's plans and ways, they are far better than what you or I could ever even think or imagine. And be assured that you can trust in God's plan and in his ways. Let's continue on to see how Jesus responded to John's disciples. Read with me verses 21 through 23. It says, In that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus didn't immediately respond to John's disciples with words. Instead, he let his works speak for themselves, his actions. In that very hour, we're told Jesus cured many of infirmities, or your translation may read illnesses, uh, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. And then he turned to John's disciples and he told them to go. And tell John all about the things that they not only saw with their very own eyes, but also what they heard from Jesus, that they were to go and declare that to John. And then Jesus concludes with something interesting in verse 23, supporting the idea that perhaps John the Baptist was struggling with Jesus' apparent lack of action on John's behalf. He said this, he said, And blessed is he who's not offended because of me. I looked up that word offended in the Greek, and in this context, it means to be offended by someone, to take offense at one's character, words, or conduct so as to reject him. So the idea would be Jesus is indicating, based upon what he says here, that he knows John's troubled by some of his actions or his apparent inactions on his behalf, and he wants to remind him, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Don't, don't allow yourself to fall into this trap. Don't allow yourself to be caught up into, into being offended and, and ultimately rejecting what I'm doing here. Okay? Blessed, it, it means possessing the favor of God, that state of being marked by fullness from God. Jesus said, you'll be blessed. You'll be satisfied and full having the favor of God if you're not offended because of me. Okay, don't turn from me, John. Keep following after me. Jesus tells John's disciples to basically tell them, you'll be satisfied, you'll be full with the favor of God if you're not offended by my words, by my conduct, and even by his inactions. It's as if Jesus knew exactly what John was struggling with because he did. And he sent this word as a source of a gentle rebuke, but also a reminder and an encouragement to trust his words, to trust his conduct, that he knows what he's doing, that John should be able to find satisfaction in that truth. You know, in today's age, there are many that are offended because of Jesus. 
They are offended by his character, by his words, by his conduct, and they have rejected him because of it. People today are offended when you share the words of Jesus with them. They don't like the idea of someone else telling them what's right and what's wrong, how they ought to live their life. And as a result, they miss out on the fullness uh, and the satisfaction that a right relationship with God brings. Listen, church family, I want to encourage you today to take these words in verse 23 seriously. Let's be less concerned with being politically correct and more concerned with being biblically accurate. Okay? We ought to follow the instructions of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. that tells us to speak the truth in love. Warren Wearsby, he writes, Truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. Okay? Truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. Okay? We don't need to be brutal, and we shouldn't be hypocritical. Nonetheless, we can speak the truth in love and find fullness and satisfaction in doing so. Well, let's continue on in our text. We're going to read what Jesus had to say after John's disciples departed. Read verses 24 through 28 with me. It says, When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. We'll stop right there. As John's disciples depart, Jesus then turns his attention to the multitudes and he begins to speak about John the Baptist. And he asks a series of questions over the next several verses, all pertaining to the main question of what the people went out into the wilderness to see. Remember that John the Baptist's ministry was a very successful one. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Okay, and that uh, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So people from all around came out to see him. It was a very successful ministry. And in verse 24, Jesus asks, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now, a, a reed shaken in the wind, it pictures for us something that is swayed every which way, depending upon the direction of the wind. When the wind's blowing this way, it kind of folds over this way. When it's blowing the other way, and it just kind of goes whichever way the wind blows. Okay? Connected to the idea of a person, it would portray someone that's unstable. Someone that goes with whatever the thought is most prevalent. Okay? Was that John the Baptist? Okay, someone unstable, someone intent on following the latest mainstream thoughts and opinions? <laughs> Absolutely not, okay? If anything, John was the exact opposite of that. 
He, he was the one speaking out against the mainstream. He was the one speaking out against the powers that be. He spoke out against the religious elite, referring to them as a brood of vipers, demanding that they bear fruits worthy of repentance. He spoke out against the political powers that be, as well as he called out King Herod for his adulterous relationship with Herodias. John was not a reed shaken in the wind. And listen, church family, neither should we be. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. We shouldn't be unstable and tossed back and forth by whatever prevailing thoughts are out there, by whatever the culture says, whatever is acceptable today. We need to be well-rooted and grounded in our faith in the Word of God. Well, in verse 25, Jesus asks, But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Soft garments uh, would refer to the clothing made of soft materials, fine textures like silk or cashmere. Okay, Jesus indicates that those types of people, they live lives of luxury. They're located in king's courts, symbolizing someone of wealth and of power, of, of influence. Was that John the Baptist? Okay, was he living it up in the king's courts, sporting the latest fashion? Hey, no way. If you know anything about John the Baptist, okay, you know that that isn't true. We're told that John lived out in the wilderness, not in the king's courts, and that he wore camel's hair okay, with a leather belt. Okay, the outer coat of a camel's fur is coarse and hard. Okay, it's not soft. It's not plush. Okay. You see, John wasn't influenced by the wealthy and the powerful and church family. Neither should we be. James chapter 2 tells us, Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He goes on to speak of how if a rich man comes in fine apparel, don't show him partiality over the poor man that comes. Also, he spoke of how God has chosen the poor to be the heirs of the kingdom, of how the rich, they oppress uh, uh, you and blaspheme the name of Christ. Listen, church family, I want to encourage you, don't waste time trying to keep up with the Joneses. <laughs> Follow Christ and live a simple life of faith and obedience. In verse 26, Jesus says, But what did you go out to see? prophet? Yes. Okay. John the Baptist was a prophet, one who spoke on behalf of the Lord. But Jesus continued saying, I say to you, in reference to John, that he was more than a prophet. Jesus was saying that John the Baptist was greater than just uh, uh, an Old Testament prophet. He was more than any of those prophets. And the reason why he was more than a prophet is found in verse 27, when Jesus quotes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. John the Baptist was more than just a prophet because he was chosen to be the prophet that proclaimed the arrival of the Messiah. All other prophets before him spoke of a future glory that would appear. They spoke of future events. John was given the honor of proclaiming the arrival of those future events because John was given the ministry of preparing the way for the Lord and proclaiming his arrival. That makes him greater than all the other prophets. It wasn't necessarily that he was more holy or more 
righteous, okay, than any of the other prophets, but that he got to see and be part of the fulfillment of all those past prophecies. All the other prophets said, a day is coming, a day is coming, a day is coming. John the Baptist got to be the one that said, the day is here. It's now, it's arrived. And then Jesus says that even though there was none greater born of woman than John the Baptist as a prophet, he who was least in the kingdom of heaven was greater than he. Who are those of the kingdom of heaven? That's you and me. You guys understand that? You guys realize that? That's you and me. Philippians 3.20 tells us that those who are in Christ, they have their citizenship in heaven. The least of us are greater than John the Baptist. Well, how can that be? Some of you may be asking. Okay? Again, it doesn't have anything to do with personal character or, hol- or holiness or our own righteousness. It has to do with our standing and our position in Christ. John the Baptist did not get to partake of the new covenant that we are so blessed to partake of. He was beheaded and died before Christ implemented the new covenant through his work on the cross, through his victory over the grave. He's not able to enjoy the benefits of the new covenant of living under grace, but died under the old covenant of the law. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He says, as we may say, as a rule, that the darkest day is lighter than the brightest night. So John, though first of his own order, is behind the last of the new or gospel order. The least in the gospel stands on higher ground than the greatest under the law. Regarding our position in Christ, we are greater than John the Baptist because of what Christ did upon the cross for us, because we have the incredible benefit of living under grace now okay and so we have that standing okay we are children of the king okay not prophets uh necessarily or servants we have our family and we live by the grace of god nonetheless john was a very special prophet indeed john the baptist had the blessing of being the one to finally say he's here And listen, I think there's also another application for us here because we too have a similar blessing. And some may say even a greater blessing of not only saying he's already come, but that he's also coming again. We live in exciting times. We have opportunities to be like John the Baptist and proclaim the wonderful news of Christ's coming, his past first coming and also his future second coming. Just as John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord, we too can go and proclaim the gospel message and let this world around us know that Jesus Christ is coming back, that he is coming again, that he came some 2,000 years ago and he will come again. Back to our text. Verses 29 and 30, they record for us the response of the people who are gathered there with Jesus. Let's read. It says, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. As was becoming more and more the case, the large crowds of people that were hanging out with Jesus were mixed crowds. A multitude of the people were made up of those who were 
believers. They followed Jesus and his teachings. There was also a growing group of dissenting religious leaders. And in between those two were a significant amount of people I like to refer to as looky-loos, okay? People who were simply there to see what would happen next, okay? When all the people heard what Jesus had to say about John the Baptist, you can imagine that within a mixed crowd, you'd have mixed responses. And that's what we see here in our text. Those that had received John's ministry, okay, they repented of their sins, they went out to be baptized by him. We're told that they justified God. Okay, even the tax collectors who were notoriously disliked, they were seen as one of the worst kinds of sinners imaginable. They justified God. Now, the idea here being portrayed is that they declared the righteousness of God. When it says they justified God, it's saying that they declared the righteousness of God, that God is right and that they were wrong, basically. They acknowledged their sin. They repented. They were baptized in accordance with God's will for their life. But those that rejected John's ministry, they did not go out. They did not get baptized by John. And in doing so, they were rejecting the very will of God for their life. Well, let's continue on our text. Read with verses 31 and 32. It says, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. We'll pause right there real fast. Here in these verses, Jesus turns his attention towards the men of this generation, and we can tell by the overall context that he really is targeting the group of people that had rejected the will of God and had rejected the ministry of John the Baptist, the religious elite, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the experts of the law. And what did Jesus have to say about the religious elite in that day? He said they were like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, we played the flute for you, you did not dance, we mourned to you, and you did not weep. These verses are written in verse because they are a play on words, and they're actually in rhyme. In both the Aramaic language and the Greek language, the words dance and weep are similar sounding, so we don't get the full effect uh, here in the English, okay? This play on words and the rhyme. So what did Jesus mean by using this play on words and this little rhyme? Jesus likened the men of that generation, the religious elite, to children that were playing or trying to play out in the streets. The children were calling out to their companions who were, for some reason, either throwing a tantrum of some sort or simply being apathetic. They would not respond to the many attempts to engage them. The children called out to them, inviting them to dance as they played the flute, but to no avail. The companions would not respond to their attempts. And so the children figured their companions must not be in the mood to dance and celebrate. Perhaps they're feeling somber, and so they reached out to them by mourning to them to see if they'd rather, you know, interact in that manner. As they mourned, they were looking for a response, and they still did not get any. They, the Bible says, did not weep. They were hoping for some sort of response, some sort of acknowledgement of their efforts to reach them. Their companions would give them none, no dancing, no lamenting, nothing. Jesus likens the religious elite to this generation uh, to a group of children that will not respond or engage no matter what their companions did to reach out to them. And so why would Jesus liken the generation to apathetic children? Verse 33 and 34 tells us why. Take a look. It says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Jesus says that John the Baptist came to this generation and instead of listening to him and following his instructions, people said that he was demon-possessed. John the Baptist was an ascetic, someone who renounces material comforts and leads a life of strict self-discipline. John the Baptist did not eat the comfort foods of the day, but he was very self-disciplined, eating locusts and wild honey. Some believe that he may have taken the vow of a Nazarite based upon the proclamation of the angel that visited Zacharias, his father, before John's birth, which stated he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And so uh, part of the vow of a Nazarite would be to abstain from wine and strong drink. And so people think that he lived this uh, life of a Nazarite. And so John the Baptist, he came eating little to nothing, living off of the land, living a simple life of obscurity and abstaining from drinking. And the religious leaders as a whole did not respond to him. And instead they accused him of being demon possessed. Jesus, the son of man, on the other hand, came eating and drinking. And they accused him of sinful excess in eating and drinking. They lumped him together with the likes of tax collectors and sinners. So you see, Jesus didn't live the extreme life of self-denial that John the Baptist lived. He ate and he drank like others. And because of that, they falsely accused Jesus of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. Now, generally speaking, a glutton is an excessive or self-indulgent eater. However, gluttony is more than overeating. It also describes a life given over to excess. And so the two opposites are presented. John the Baptist lived a life of extreme self-denial. They didn't respond to him. Jesus came on the scene they, and they accused him of being the opposite of John the Baptist. He was living and consuming in excess. And they didn't listen to him either. It's as if Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who is sent to you. You wouldn't listen to them anyways. Not only would you not listen, but you'd also make up some lame excuse as to why you would not listen. <laughs> I'm not going to listen to John the Baptist. He's demon-possessed. I'm not going to listen to Jesus. You know, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The religious leaders had an excuse for everything. You see, the real problem was not John the Baptist or Jesus. The problem was their own sin and stubbornness, their own pride and not being willing to humble themselves and to submit to the Lord. And I see a lot of similarities between the generation of Jesus' day and today's generation there are many today that have all sorts of excuses for why they will not listen to the word of the Lord and submit themselves to him and come to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a good person. I don't need the Lord. Oh, the church, it's, it's just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Or I'm not ready to surrender now. I'm having too much fun. You know, I'll do that when I'm older. Or, you know, I believe in science, you know, and, and that's religion is not for me. Whatever the excuse is, at the root of each and every one of them is sin. Stubbornness and pride that keeps us from releasing that sin. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 explains this truth when it says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And with that exposure of sin comes conviction and a realization of being wrong. And people today just don't want to hear anyone that tells them they're doing what they're doing is wrong. And so the only alternative is to make up excuses. 
And I would even say, you guys, in a smaller yet similar way, I think this can even happen within the church. Even as Christians and followers of the Lord, we too can still make excuses for why we're not listening to the Lord, why we're not obeying the Lord, why we're not following through with what God has clearly showed us, with what the voice of the Lord has been laying upon our hearts. And the excuses most often always boil down to self-comfort. You see, Jesus asked his followers to die to themselves every day, to pick up their cross daily, to die to self. And often, we don't want to do that. We don't want to give up on our own plans, our own desires, our own comforts, and be willing to put them on the shelf for something the Lord asks of us. The Lord may be asking us to talk to a coworker about the Lord or to cut loose some of the weights that we're carrying around with us. You know, weights, weights aren't necessarily sin, but they're slowing us down. They're keeping us from walking with the Lord effectively and efficiently. Perhaps the Lord is asking you to make a change in your life for whatever that may be. Maybe He's asking you to help out in the church, to plug in to fellowship. I don't know what the Lord may be asking of you or may be calling you to, but I am confident that He's asking something. You see, he's not done with any of us. And so he has things for us. What is the Lord asking of you? Have you taken the time lately to truly seek that out? The answer to that question. Allow him to show you the answer to that question. We need to listen to the Lord and we need to stop making excuses. The religious people of Jesus' generation, they wouldn't listen to him. They made up all sorts of excuses. Let's not be like them. Okay? Let's listen for the Lord's voice and let's obey when he asks us of something. Stop the excuses. Allow the Lord to lead us into his wonderful will for our lives. Well, let's finish off our text with our final verse. Verse 35 says, but wisdom is justified by all her children. When Jesus says, but wisdom is justified by all her children, the idea being presented is to look at the fruit, to look at the offspring, look at what is being produced. What did John the Baptist's wisdom produce? Well, he was a man of great discipline, an ascetic who abstained from wine and from the everyday comforts of life and lived in the wilderness. He loved the Lord, wasn't ashamed of the message that he proclaimed. What did the wisdom of Jesus produce? Jesus lived a simple life as well. He loved all mankind. He taught the scriptures as one with authority. He preached a message of repentance and he healed countless people from sickness and disease and demon possession. But what did the wisdom of this generation produce? You see, the wise were believed to be the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes. What did their wisdom produce? Jesus said in Matthew 23 this regarding the Pharisees and scribes, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. The wisdom of the generation produced burdens for others that they wouldn't bother to carry themselves at all. Wisdom then is justified by her children. Which is better, the wisdom of John the Baptist and Jesus or the wisdom of the generation? It's plain to see that the works produced by John the Baptist and Jesus were far more desirable than the works of the current generation. And, and I think the application for us is really quite simple, you guys. What sort of fruit are we producing in our lives? Okay? Is there wisdom in our offspring? Okay? 
I'm not talking about your kids, okay? I'm sure they're smart, okay? <laughs> in the fruit of our lives, okay? Do people see wisdom or do they see foolishness? Wisdom is justified by her children. Well, that's the word of the Lord for us today. Many lessons from John the Baptist. I pray we will take them to heart and allow the Lord to continue to mold and shape us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of John the Baptist, a man that was not ashamed of you, Lord, a man who, yes, you know, struggled a little, Lord, and he had some doubts, but he never allowed those doubts to lead him to a place of unbelief. Lord, you encouraged him, you strengthened him, Lord, and you want to encourage and strengthen us the same. Lord, maybe things aren't happening the way we anticipated them to. May we have confidence in your plans, in your ways, in your thoughts, Lord, that they are infinitely better than our own. Lord, may we be like John the Baptist. May we stand upon uh, the convictions that your Spirit uh, puts upon our hearts. May we be bold in sharing the wonderful news of a Savior that has come and a Savior that is coming again. Lord, as we desire to learn from John the Baptist, Lord, we also, in like manner, just desire to be more and more like you. And so, Lord, lead us and guide us. Mold us and shape us. Have your will in our lives. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.